Welcome to a World on Fire, an all-star squadron podcast. I'm your host, Billy D, and alongside me for this episode is my co-host, Martin Gray. How are you, Mark? Hi, Billy. I'm fine. Just back from a holiday and raring to go. Yeah, how about it? So we've got two more issues here to talk about, and there are two more spotlights, but they were a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoyed them. You know, we have uh, 62 here, which is our buddy, the Shining Knight, you know, Sir Justin, and... uh, then the second one is uh, Robot Man, uh, 63. So a couple of fun characters here to uh, talk about. And, you know, we, you and I had talked about The Shining Knight a bit on a previous episode as well because uh, I really enjoy that character quite a bit because I love Arthurian lore and all that stuff. So uh, a lot of fun with that one for sure. Oh, I think I think we'll have some fun. I mean, we've, funny, of course, we've got two metal men in a row, so we can get <laughs> them. It'll be fun. <laughs> absolutely so all right yeah so let's start off here all-star squadron 62 we have a uh, cover date of october 1986 and this is a, a cover by tony de zuniga so what do you think of this cover mark oh, i absolutely love it love it love it love it i mean it's worthy of a first issue it's got you know sir justin flying at us criminals looking scared wing victory looking magnificent Gorgeous, gorgeous colouring. I mean, there's no signature, but it's well, unmistakably the work of the great Tony DeZuniga. And he had, as you know, worked with Roy Thomas on the sadly, sadly departed Arax Son of Thunder series towards the end. And mm-hmm. it's just beautiful. I mean, you can see his experience with horses and cowboy comics. I don't know whether Wind Victories ever looked quite so magnificent. And she just doesn't look half bad either. And even better, I love a good serpent. So, hi, Merlin. Yeah, that's my favorite part of the cover, how you can see Merlin in this like cloud in the background. That is incredible. It really is. I mean, I mean the, the movement in the hands, the gesture of Merlin over, over Sir Justin. The only thing that I don't think quite works on the on the cover is the little the little sunburst behind Sir Justin. I don't know whether it was meant to represent shininess, shininess even. That's a word, isn't it? <laughs> but no, I mean still no ten. 10 out of 10 for the cover. The, the, the colouring of the serpent, the light blue, works really well with Wing Victory and Sir Justin's yellow and red combo, which is reflected in the logo, the All Star Squadron logo. We have the Shiny Knight's excellent little, little masthead, his own little logo. Mm. It's just one of, must be one of the, the top five covers of the whole series. Yeah, for me too. I totally agree. And yeah, the 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 shine there, the the spotlight, sun, whatever that is supposed to be behind him. I I think it would be a lot better if it was just the the faded blue all behind him. Yeah, it looks like he's advertising, you know, flash disinfectant or something. <laughs> Maybe a flash for the old school cameras. <laughs> oh, could be, could be. <laughs> and there's a skyline beneath him there too that looks really good. But yeah, great job here by Tony. Uh, great cover, loving it. And then my copy, I don't know, I guess it's a uh, maybe the, the direct one. Instead of, you know, a UPC in the corner, it says Batman number 401 is the stuff of legends. So that made me think, well, OK, what's Batman 401 all about? Is that some really awesome guess. issue? Bye-bye. And I'm looking at it and it, it it's a John Byrne cover, but the cover is not impressive to me at all. So maybe the story is really good, but yeah, Magpie. <laughs> One for solo to boy. No, she wasn't impressed. She looked, I mean, she looked like an old man with sort of wispy hair, mad scientist hair. Not a fan. Yeah, not a big fan of that one. And I do like John Byrne's artwork for the most part, you know, but that I looked at it and I thought, uh, the stuff of legends. Wow. Okay. Sure, DC. <laughs> 
<laughs> it intrigued you though, Billy, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I was just like, wow, this must be something really cool. And I think in the back of my head, I was picturing Detective 401, which I'm sure was something much better than that. Oh, certainly. Because it had probably been, you know, around a bit longer. So they, I think Detective had some, still had some pretty good content heading into the 400s. But yeah, Magpie, not for me. But anyway, all right, let's get back to All-Star Squadron here. So uh, we have our boy Roy Thomas with the script. Tony DiZuniga does the pencils and the inks. Colors by Carl Gafford. And letters by David Cody Weiss. So uh, do you want to uh, take it away here, Mr. Gray? I will certainly give it a little bit of a synopsis here. Mm-hmm. Okay, Billy. We open with the shining knight and his steed, Winged Victory, soaring down into the streets of modern-day New York, capturing some petty crooks. The crowd is agog and aghast at the sight and wonder where the mystery man came from. Flashback. In the days of King Arthur, a knight at the court of Camelot is interrupted by the arrival of a knight, Sir Fallon, in a terrible state. He reveals that he's been attacked by the ogre Blunderbore, who has been terrorising the northern lands. New knight on the block, Sir Justin, offers to kill the giant and rides off on his horse, the non-winged victory. After a few days, he's challenged by ruffians in a spooky forest. And as he chases them, he accidentally runs into a tree with his lance, causing a voice to cry out, Ow! I am stabbed! It's Merlin, the famed wizard, who had been trapped by a witch. As a reward for freeing him, the wizard changes Sir Justin's heavy, dull armour to a light gold material, which Merlin says is bulletproof, confusing the heck out of his new friend. He makes Sir Justin's sword an invincible weapon. He also zaps victory, turning him white and causing him to grow wings. Bidding farewell to the Enchanter, Sir Justin flies into the air on his newly rechristened winged victory and isn't sure that he likes the feeling of being so far from the ground. He perseveres and finally comes across the ogre, a cocky brute. They fight, and while Sir Justin delivers a killing blow, likewise Blunderbore knocks knight and horse into a crevice. Ice forms around them, and Sir Justin bemoans the fact that his chance to do great deeds as a knight is lost. A thousand years later, a lump of ice containing Sir Justin Wing Victory floats southwards and lands upon the shores of New England in the United States. A museum curator, Dr Moresby, sees it and, intrigued by the shadowy figures therein, blows it up with dynamite. Happily, Knight and Steed don't just survive, they wake up. The Doctor shows Sir Justin the new world, giving him lodgings at his home and introducing him to his sassy young friend Eve, who is immediately smitten. Dr Moresby's home seems to double as a museum, attracting a couple of crooks in the dead of night. They briefly tussle with Sir Justin before fleeing in their jalopy. The knight pursues them, they feel the flat edge of Sir Justin's magical sword, and we catch up to this issue's opening scene. Sir Justin resolves to make his way in this strange new world. So what did you reckon to this one, sir? Wow. Well, I'll tell you what. This was only the first... This is actually the first time I've like read through this cover to cover, not just skimmed through it, and I had a blast. And I'll tell you, Tony DiZaniga is great i really didn't have as much of an appreciation for his artwork as i should have before i read this and it's probably because i don't have a ton of his work but this issue was absolutely gorgeous the scenes where uh we were in the flashback uh during the arthurian times it they actually some of the the panels he has they look like something out of you know an errol flynn movie they're incredible i could not believe how great they were 
Oh, they're ap- absolutely fantastic. Earl Flynn movie, Prince Valiant comics. It's just mm-hmm. really romantic, strong artwork. And it's, it's I mean, the, the story itself is funny in a way because it's a, as, as you know, it's a retelling of his first appearance, which was in Adventure Comics 66, looks it up. Mm-hmm. And while it's about twice as long as the original, Roy doesn't actually add much because comic storytelling was so blooming dense in the golden age. I mean, <laughs> You have a few extra lines here and there. Action scenes get room to breathe. Roy adds in the odd by my halidom, which I still don't know what it means. And Bob's your uncle. Yeah, it's, it's, I just I just think it's a cracking yarn, you know, with chivalrous night, not so much tossed into the future as sent by the slow train. I mean, it's four. I suppose I wonder you wonder whether it's, you know, Stan Lee had read this as a kid, or whether it's a young man who was working at Marvel at the time in the golden age. Whether years later we gave him the idea of having Captain America frozen in a block of ice. But although here we have, <laughs> because you have Wing Victory coming too, that was one packed block of ice. Yeah, really? <laughs> and then the guy blows it up with dynamite. That was crazy. I was like, wow, what is this old nut doing? Like, how does he know he's not going to kill whatever's in there? Because you could clearly see there was somebody inside it. <laughs> which, you know, which, which beachcombing archaeologist doesn't go out equipped with sticks of dynamite? You do. Mm, yeah that was kind of wild i i did think that was funny but i again i just i couldn't believe how good this these flashback scenes were if i had one teeny tiny little criticism of the entire story i would just say that i wish tony would have drawn a more uh scary kind of monsterish kind of ogre it, it honestly just looks like a big giant of a man that has you know some jagged teeth yeah, I mean, he was apart from, apart from the clothing. I mean, you'll have noticed he's very, very true to the original Silver Age version of the in the, of, the, of the ogre. Who I realise, well, I don't realise. I looked it up. Is one of the ogres that Jack the Giant Killer fought in Cornwall Legends, Blunderbore. Mm, okay, yeah, it, it, that's that's it. My only criticism. Everything else was fantastic. You know, in the action between. Uh, you know, the fight with the ogre and with Sir Justin was great. And I do, like you said, too, I'm wondering here, like, that's a little Captain America-ish with the uh, block of ice. But I do like it. It's a good touch. Oh, it, it, it is. And it's, you know, again, you know, from from the original story. So it, may, it makes as much sense as anything did back then. And indeed, nowadays, it's, you know, why have not? You know, we've already established that this is a world of magic. So why not a bit of, a bit of magic-y science? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, then, yeah. especially the. the... Mm-hmm. So I was going to say the uh, the wizard in the tree. If memory serves me, have you ever seen a British TV series from about 1970? It's still in reruns across the world called Cat Weasel. I have not. No. Oh, that was about that was about, about a wizard a wizard played by Jeffrey Bild and the actor who I'm sure was in Doctor Who and everything really. But mm-hmm. if memory serves, in the first episode, he was he was walking from you know centuries of sleep i think i think he was in a tree as well so it's probably just a bit of a trope wizards in trees be careful kids don't walk trees <laughs> yeah stay away <laughs> too funny but yeah it was like i was saying i just the whole flashback scene it was making me think of those kinds of movies you know and i i love those adventure films and of course the ones with arrow uh, arrow flynn and it was great one of my favorites though I don't know if you've seen this one, and I'm a huge fan of Hammer Studios uh, from uh, over your side of uh, the ocean. And one of my one, yeah, one of my favorites of theirs is Sword of Sherwood Forest, which is kind of funny because everybody probably thinks of you know 
vampires and werewolf and this and that when they think of Hammer, but they did a lot of films, and that was one of my favorites that they did. I've not seen that one, Billy, sir. Who was in that? Uh, Richard Green was in that one. Uh, oh, Peter... Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding mm-hmm. Yep, and then Peter Cushing, and if I'm not mistaken, he played the Sheriff of Nottingham in that, in that one. Right. Yeah, p- played a bit of a rascal there, and then Richard Pascoe was in it as well. You know, another oh, yeah. one, yeah. Ni- Nigel Green. Yeah, it's really, really good. I was surprised. It was uh, maybe it was one of the first, if not the first, non-hammer horror films I actually watched, and I thought, oh, I'll give it a try, and I just couldn't believe how much I loved it. Uh, Oliver Reed's in it too. Hey, gotta love Oliver Reed. Oh, wonderful! I have to, I have to search that out. Sounds rather the hoot. Mm-hmm. It is. It's it's it just the visuals alone. Uh, are fantastic they did a great job with it you know like and a cast like that but that's in my head that's what i was thinking the whole time i was watching that that and of course the uh early 1980s uh excalibur too you know you gotta that one that one popped into my mind too because of merlin i've never even seen that film i have i did i did buy i did buy a poster magazine version of it at the time for the, the, the publishing company that did starburst but uh, i must there's no reason i've not watched it i just need to watch it at some point Yes, you would enjoy that one quite a bit. It's very, very good. You would like that one. I, I, I know you would like that one. It's a very good fantasy film. I do like the Arthurian stuff. I do. I do indeed. So after that amazing cover, what did you write into the splash page in which we have Sir Justin Neal again coming down through the streets of New York being fired at by crooks? Oh, it's fantastic. And I <laughs> I love it too. You know, and it's it, it's a trope for sure, but I love it when you have these gangster type guys and they have... Uh, very crude uh, English. So <laughs> let me out of here, the one guy says when <laughs> Sir Justin's coming in with his, his sword to uh, take a swat at them. And I, I just love it when it's uh, these gangsters have that gangster speak. I love it, the street talk. They do, they do. I mean, they're not really Damon Runyon gangsters, are they? They're not very eloquent. Mm, no, but it's great. He, and one guy calls him, or says that uh, Sir Justin has his fancy pants armor <laughs> i love it <laughs> I'm not, i mean I was, okay it's 1942 but it was such a refreshing thing to see that tony dezuna could draw modern modernish scenes as well as you could draw to the the ancient fantasy world because it uh, just the detail you put into the buildings in the background i mean i don't know whether you had an assistant or you know help from the studio mates but it just looks absolutely fantastic and that guy at the bottom actually the way he's running off the page reminds me a little, a little bit of Action Comics number one. Mm. Oh, yeah, kind of. I see that. Yeah, for sure. There's a little bit of that in there. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit more the next issue, but we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But yeah, good stuff here. Really good stuff. That splash page is, is and I do love to at the very top on the left hand side too. tales of the all star squadron, the origin of the shining knight. And it's like on a scroll and it has the shining knights, you know, uh, his own logo there, just like on the cover. I love it. Great touch by Roy and uh, Roy and Tony D. Yeah, it's very nice. And I do like that there's no quote from Roy. I do like it when there's not a quote. It's interesting, actually, when he, he said at the bottom, based on the story in Adventure Comics nine, uh, number 66, 1941, drawn by Craig Flessel. Looking at you know more modern sources, Craig is spelled with an E in more modern sources, so I don't know whether he went by both, but anyway, that's not going to be of interest to anybody, probably. But what is of interest, how cool is Winged Victory? Because the horse, you know, didn't sign on for this, but look at him, he's playing hooves and bracelets like Wonder Woman. Yeah, I did see that. The one guy shooting right at his leg there, but I, you touched on it too when you said about, you know, even the cover, 
it is and any artist will tell you it is extremely difficult to draw animals yeah. and the wing and victory looks great at every page every panel the cover no matter where you turn it looks fantastic and that's another testament to tony d it really really is it's, it's i mean i don't think any kid could open the comic and just not want to read on after that opening that scene mm, yeah oh yeah this is uh, this is incredibly good no on, on page two mm-hmm. i love it yep. you know, the guy, go right ahead yeah, he's running off the edge of page one. On page two, he's he's running so animated with his legs, you know, about about three, three, four, five feet or something. And but the cooks are completely beaten with one of the end of our hero's lands. But one of the one of the lines of the issue from from Sir Justin, when asked about his flying mountain, he says, "'Tis neither mummery nor magic, men in blue." That that's a Roy, and it's just fantastic. Really love it. <laughs> yeah, that's great stuff. And that top panel is funny too because he has his lance. And he's shoving his lance up the guy's shirt, it looks like, and picking him up the one crook. <laughs> yeah, really good. But, but uh, yeah, when we do go into the flashback on page three, as you said earlier, Tazuna, you know, you know, making good use of his Iraq experience to give us a convincing Camelot. And yeah, mm. it's Sir Fallon, which is, I didn't know it was a man's name, but presumably it was. I don't think of Fallon Carrington from Dynasty. But, you know, he just looks so pathetic after his encounter with Blunderbore. I mean, he obviously he couldn't fight like Blunderbore. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't resist. <laughs> no, I know that's my third bit of bad singing. I should let's nip that in the bud, shall we? But yeah, I mean, what what do you make of that page? Mm, it's fantastic. And again, I I love how there's you know Arthur sitting there and Guinevere, and the knights are around the round table there. It, it does. It literally looks like if you would watch one of those adventure fantasy films. And see a scene like that and just pause it on your television and lift it right from there. That's that's exactly what that, you know, third page splash panel looks like. It's it's incredible. Doesn't it, Justin? King Arthur actually looks a little different to in the original story. But looking at him, actually, I've got it behind me and I meant to, I meant to check against Camelot 3000. But he looks like he might be sort of a little similar to, to Brian Bolland's King Arthur and Camelot 3000, which I think was around about the same time. He does, yeah. I think that was in the mid '80s. Was was that pre-crisis, right before maybe? Uh, oh, I'm I'm not too sure. Because this this I'll have a, I'll have a, a ten second Google. <laughs> but I was you know, it's a, it's a very King Arthur type look anyway. But twelve issues, nineteen eighty two to nineteen eighty five. Gosh, yes, yeah, so it was twelve issues and took about three and a half years to come out. So <laughs> wow, <laughs> yeah, and you know. A, a picture's come up, and actually, yes, yes, well, I'm going to have to tweet this out at some point, but it looks like the exact, pretty much the exact same King Arthur, right down to the red, mm-hmm. the, the red, the red tunic, the blue cape, the yellow crown with red bits on. Yeah. I think that must be deliberate, so, you know, presumably an idea of Editor Roy, or, but if not, it's certainly brilliantly executed by Jezuniga and mm. August, so nice work. Very yeah. Cool. Great stuff. Yeah, that's like you said, I could have been Roy saying, hey, uh, let's try to make him look like uh, Ballin did in the that Saint, uh, limited series or maxi series, I should say. But oh, and then Fallon, Sir Fallon falls and croaks right there. <laughs> that's kind of wild. Yeah, it's like, whoa, we need, I, I thought he was just going to be like hurt really bad. But nope, he's done. <laughs> well, that's because no man ever had entered Blunderbore's land and returned to tell the tale. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, well. Yeah. Up until uh, the next scene, you know, somebody's going to live to tell the tale, but <laughs> not for a thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> Too right. 
Mm. Yeah, very fun issue, top to bottom. No, I loved it, but man, yeah, King Arthur gets all pissed off, and he has his uh, fist raised in the air, and he's, you know, I, somebody's going to take him on, my brave lads, and I must choose amongst ye, and I do choose. And then all of a sudden, Sir Justin, my liege, and he comes busting in, and he looks really good, that following page there, page five, where we see him for the first time here. Uh, he looks great. He, he really, really does. He just looks handsome fella. I don't know whether that's, you know, Dark Ages accurate hair, but who cares? He looks just brilliant. I mean, these, I would have been quite happy if the whole book had been set in this time, but obviously, you know, got to be true mm -hmm. to the... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that panel in the middle of the page, too. That one's really good. Ah, so just holding the hole in his blade, not enchanted. Yeah. Just to shame that the position of King Arthur in the panel above, the tier above, doesn't allow the, the, the sword to pop up into the, you know, to break the panel. Yeah. I always think if you see most of his sword, you should see the end of the sword as well. And this, I'm not being cheeky or euphemistic. There's no double meaning there. I just think you should see the whole sword. Yeah, that would be a lot better if they would have just had that panel extend up into there. That would have been a lot nicer. It certainly would. Yeah, I but do like that one. Oh, it's it's because it's like it's like in the back. You know, they make the background all black that you can't see anything, so the focus is right on the sword and Sir Justin. Yeah, really good. It really is really nice coloring job. Great choice by uh, the art team here again, Tony. Um, but yeah, like you said, and he <laughs> he comes to a. I just want to pick a fight with him for no reason, apparently. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I went back to the original to see if they'd been sort of charged with looking after the tree or what, protecting Merlin, but no, that's, that's just the way we did. So we just stand around waiting to pick a fight, Billy. Sorry. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of wild. It's just like, what are these guys up to? But I'm sure even back in Arthurian times, there were complete goons just like there are now. So <laughs> explain it away that way. <laughs> Absolutely, but I mean the whole the whole scene on on page six where he meets he meets the goons. There's one one especially nice panel where in which one of their horses is in the foreground, and you just you just see the horse's legs and see, you know, so just in the distance, in the middle distance, in the middle ages, well, dark ages, in the in the panel, and it just looks fantastic. As you say, really good horsework. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, like you said, you know, we talked about earlier. This is it's incredibly tough to draw animals, but. It doesn't matter it, it, what even, you know, the page of the, the panel above there, there's another like profile shot, and, you know, uh, winged victories kind of like, you know, got his head down there. But it's no matter what uh, perspective you have here, it looks great. And then <laughs> the whole lance going into the tree. That's great. Ow, I am stabbed. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> it was cool, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's you know, hard to draw animals, not hard to draw a wizard cape and pointy hat with stars and suns and comets <laughs> yeah he looks great i like how uh sir justin says uh words from a tree what magic is this and, and merlin comes out the best kind sir knight my thanks to thee and so he says about uh the witch who had uh, trapped him in there and says his name sir justin and i really do like again these this page here page seven where he kind of you know gives him the new armor and oh man that's a really cool uh scene there when he like taps him on the shoulder with the wand do you want to know how stupid i am billy do you want to know what an idiot you're talking to i never realized he was called the shiny knight because his armor shone i thought it was you know a reference to his character because i mean obviously I, I probably haven't read enough i mean i need to maybe read more of those 
you know, original stories or Seven Soldiers of Victory, but I don't really remember his armor getting many glittering effects. I just, I just always, you know, I read his armor as just yellow rather than shining gold. So yeah, that's how stupid I am. <laughs> yeah, you were thinking it was just his shining personality, right? Yeah, yeah, honestly. Mm-hmm. But you actually get, you get in this issue at the start before before it's turned into lovely lightweight gold. It's still yellow. So whereas in the original in the original Golden Age version, his arm is grey. So you get you get the contrast, and you know straight away it's evident why he's called the Shining Knight. Whereas here it wasn't to me. What is evident is that absolutely stunning shot of Merlin at the bottom of the page. Mm, yeah, I mean he put a lot of detail in his face here, and then his beard and mustache and everything. And then I love how there's like all these like trees and branches and everything and vines behind him, like almost like, uh, like halfway around his face and head. I love that. It's really nice. And, you know, nice use of just a little bit of negative space and the darkness. It's, it's just such a stunning issue. It really, really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Great panel. And then he, <laughs> I love on the next page too, when he, you know, taps the sword and says about it, you know, being indestructible and this and that. And then he, then he zaps uh, the horse too. And again, here we go. Like two shots, three panels with uh, winged victory. And then the one where the wings have completely grown out. Wow. That looks really, really good there. It looks amazing. Must have been so blooming traumatic for that horse. Oh, goodness me. What's mm. going on? Unless he understands human speak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think, I think it was on the last episode that yourself and, Sean were talking about the, the sword and saying that you, I think one of you said that you thought it was Excalibur, but I don't think it is Excalibur because it's just his own sword, isn't it? It's transformed. Yeah, it, that's how it's portrayed here. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. It's just, yep, just shown that way. What's funny is, as well is when she just tries the sword for the first time and, and slices through the tree, the sound effect is slice, which surprised me because I really hate the, the modern trend for sound effects whereby it's not actually onomatopoeia. It's more like, you know, like, uh, it'll be, you know, if, if they climb something, it'll be, you know, it'll be climb, or if they're running, it'll be run rather than zoom. It's just, but here we have in, the, you know, about 1985, six or something like that, slice. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes they do that, and I feel like they do it just to be silly. I do it so often nowadays, it just gets on my, no, you've a little bit. <laughs> and then I do have to mention, too, um, in the actual comic here, you know, you flip to go to the next page, and then before we get to page, uh, I guess it's page nine in the uh, story, on the left hand is uh, an advertisement for the Man of Steel, the uh, John Byrne and Dick Giordano one. And oh man, that is a great, it's a great shot of Superman. Oh, really, darn. really cool. As ever, I must say that my my issue, my original copy is in the northeast of England, a few hundred miles away. I'm reading on DC digital app, but I don't have the advert there, so I have to try. I think I remember the ad that you're talking about. And oh yeah, it's pretty much mm-hmm. anything that we have to do with that comic is darn good. Yeah. Yeah, it's an iconic shot, just kind of like Superman with his one arm, his right arm back in like a fist and his left arm out like he's flying in the cape flowing and just says the man of steel. Oh, it's yeah, great advertisement. I just as soon as I turned the page and saw it, I was just like, wow, that's what Superman's supposed to look like in my head. That Kurt Swan, that's that's Superman in my head. <laughs> you were right back in the moment, Sir Knight. <laughs> so, all right, now to, on to the next page here, page nine, too. 
again, Merlin is front and center, and I love how uh, Tony DiZaniga uh, made this you know page up. The, the the way he did this page, it has Merlin in the background. Well, I'm sorry. He's almost like in the foreground of one panel in the background of two others. Do you see how yeah, he did that? Yeah, he's, he's framing the page. And unfortunately, with this being being a regular comic rather than a backstory one of a new format one, they couldn't do full bleed. So I shouldn't moan about the lack of pointed hat there. Great cookies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> off at the top of the panel, but I get, yeah, the page is just stupendous. And then you, the way you have in the panel below the picture of Merlin that you're talking about, you have suggested flying. You know, he is breaking the panel with with his with his head and with his lance. If he's about to prick Merlin's finger, it's just beautiful. Mm, yeah, the layout for this page is just incredible. Again, all all credit to uh, Tony there because uh, again, it's just crazy. And then here's where he meets up with the ogre, and they have a pretty good fight back and forth here. And you know, and it's I, I do like how it ends. How he kind of uh, at the end there plunges the sword into his chest and. The, the ogre gets that final kick there and kicks uh, Sir Justin and uh, Winged Victory off the cliff, and we get your favorite there by Halidom. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, lovely stuff. Yeah, but, but look, look at this ogre. Yeah, he's, he's certainly more fearsome than in the, in the original, because in the original, he looks like he's drawn by Al Cap. Looks like a, looks a, bit, a bit like a, cart- a cartoon character from the Labner or something. Whereas here, he's got, instead of just, just the hair, which you have in the original, he's got animal skins on his head. He looks a bit like Hercules or something. And I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to face. I mean, look, look at the way he's looming over Sir Justin at the bottom of page ten. That's scary. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, he's, he's got the scary voices. You can tell by the, the, the you know, the, uh, the, the, the funny shaped word balloons with the thick black outline. He's got a booming voice. He's an ogre and he's scary. But yeah, by Halliday, that moment where he kicks him with the sound effect kick, <laughs> kicks the back. K I K K. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Into the, in, into the chasm, the crevice, whatever. It's wonderful. It just turns them both into a snow globe. Yeah, and that's exactly what he looks like, too. It's hilarious. I mean, it's a great, when you go to page 12 there, it's great how uh, there's a real good uh, perspective shot showing, you know, uh, Sir Justin and Winged Victory again falling down this deep crevice. And like you said, then he thinks to himself about, you know, he's uh, going to be frozen and not even be able to kind of, you know, be his, be the knight he always wanted to be. And then there's, there's the snow globe in the next panel <laughs> I think I'd rather be a snow globe than a night <laughs> yeah I'd rather be a snow globe than a night no stop it <laughs> and then I, I love too how he just comes up onto the shore and the guy was I guess sitting there eating his lunch on a rock here you can see a it's like a thermos <laughs> sitting back on the rock there yeah yeah it's just it's very funny and you also wonder how when uh how, how he's got his Oh, no, he hadn't got a shield out during the fight with the ogre. I was going to say, how has he got a shield on his back? But it looks like the shield was on his back all during the fight with, with Blunderbuss, Blunderbore, rather. So, yeah, that, that's fair enough. But it's, it is just one of the colouring. It just pops so much, the red and the yellow, with it, against the naturalistic New England landscape. Mm, yeah, it looks great. And I love uh, the next page there, 13, uh, the third panel, where he lights, you know, he fires off the... Uh, the dynamite to uh, blow up the ice and it's Batum. <laughs> I love that sound effect. That's a good one. That's a proper sound effect, Billy. This is what we want. <laughs> yeah, this isn't a David Cody Weiss isn't joking around here. He's like, all right, all right, I'll do a real sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And then at first Moresby thinks he's uh, thrown in a little too much dynamite. And good Lord. 
uh, what he said, I did use too much dynamite. There'll be nothing left. And then, boom, there he is. I know. I think I would have fancy if they'd appeared in front of me, but oh, it's just again. I just just looking at these pages again. It's just marvelous. Oh, and then yeah, I love how then uh, Doctor Moresby decides like he's going to try to help uh, Sir Justin integrate into society. You know, in the nineteen forties, <laughs> him in the bathtub. <laughs> what a great line. <laughs> Forsooth, but tis an enchanted land where a man may have a lake in his home and scalding water flows at his command. Going <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's all Roy, and really, it's just like a, a nice little example of you know how he would be, you know, stunned mm-hmm. by the world. Yeah, it would it would be something that you know to us is something very simple, but to someone from you know Arthurian times would be kind of crazy and wild. Uh, yeah, good. St- good stuff <laughs> but i yeah. do love too how then when he goes to get something to eat looks like they're gonna have some ham and he sits down and sir justin says is the food alive and in need of stabbing <laughs> <laughs> dear, dear, dear. Oh, it, it, it is just it's just so funny but i did like sir justin in the bath yeah, I was just gonna say he that was a uh, pretty risque there, man. Sir Justin, it's like he's like barely covered there in that bathtub. <laughs> well, it was one of our pals on Twitter was saying when I was put when I put the panel up earlier tonight, it was it does it does actually look like there's two people in the bath. Looking at where the where the where the where the, the legs seem a little bit disconnected. You know, obviously, you know, the water's protected oh. <laughs> modest. Yeah, you know really connected. It, it does. It the, yeah. The way Tony drew his body, like his midsection, and then where the legs shoot down, it almost does look like it's it's too far away from his midsection to be his legs. <laughs> it is, but I still find it very appealing panel, Billy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks good. It's again, again. Here's Tony DiZaniga. He's drawn a horse with wings like a million bucks, and then he's drawn Sir Justin, and Sir Justin's like. He's in really good shape. He's very fit, very handsome, and his his blonde hair still hasn't moved an inch. <laughs> no, not at all. Dark ages wax. <laughs> it must be. And then the next page there, he's got a a sweater vest on there, uh, or <laughs> or a cardigan or something, a, a shirt with his collar popped out. And like I said, I love that. Roy's having some fun here. Where he's <laughs> should I stab the <laughs> the food? <laughs> it's great. It is great. I, I love the, well, she again, she's from the original comic, but I love the, the grumpy landlady morning, you know, about the way he's eating the food. Mm, don't he see there's a knife and fork on the table? <laughs> That's yeah, the great. It's in Justin's country are quite different from ours, Mrs. Johnson. Mm, and then he starts walking through the man's home here, and it's, uh, you know, he's got all these relics and stuff like that. And he says, and now, Sir Justin, it's time I show you around our, what you might call house of antiquities. And he said, so, Justin, I says, I am familiar with the notion of holy relics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is probably, it's mean, the saints' fingers in boxes and things like that. Not nice plates and shiny suits of armor. A bit unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And then he, we see in his house, he has a biplane. I'm like, man, this guy's got one big house. And then, uh, you know, some kind of artillery weapon there. And then uh, an old phone and everything like that here. And Sir Justin's really... Uh, perplexed on how all this stuff is going to work or has worked i know right right mr trick you should have said it was the, the midway city museum or something mm-hmm. where hawkman worked in the in, on another earth in the later years 
<laughs> yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, what is he then? He says he has a crown jewel from King Arthur, and he's like, "Oh, my liege lord's most favored diamond." So he's even got something that uh, Sir Justin's uh, impressed with here, which is cool. It's quite a diamond on a, on a lovely cushion. <laughs> Look at the light coming from it. <laughs> yeah. Then on that next page too is that page sixteen too. Uh, I feel like uh, Dr. Morsby in that one panel looks like FDR a little bit there with the mustache and he's holding his glasses. I can see that. Yeah, I mean, that might have been in Tony Tzuniga's mind, or <laughs> possibly. And then we have, the, we have the arrival of this young lady. Is it Eve? I did say her name. I think it's Eve. Mm, and uh, Do you see her dialogue? Say, who's the great, big, handsome brute? <laughs> wow, nice compliment, lady. <laughs> Absolutely. But on, on, on the next page, though, when... You have Dr. Moresby talking about it. There's the, the one real misstep of the issue for me where Roy has Dr. Moresby say that Eve's basically a good gal, but, and I quote, all she needs is someone to knock some sense into her. Come on, Roy. Jeez, wow, yeah, that's a, that's a bit much, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, okay, you know, she's sex on legs, but she's a person. I mean, she's not going around blowing people with dynamite. Yeah, really, she's... She's not blowing up snow globes with dynamite. <laughs> oh, man, too funny. But then you said uh, in your synopsis, too, and then there's some uh, crooks here that are, you know, uh, trying to steal something. And uh, Sir Justin quickly, uh, quick change here and throws his magic armor on and goes after them. <laughs> Again, the, here we go with the, uh, the, the the hoodlum speak. Hey, Dumbo, don't let that sparkler get away. <laughs> sparkler. <laughs> yeah. And then he reaches for the sparkle and finds something that is shining, Sir Justin's legs. You wonder, though, you know, Sir Justin, okay, he wants to put his armour on, but why go to the bother of putting on the red tunic as well? Really, honestly, wasting time. Mm, yeah, they could have got away while he was doing that. Yeah, silly Sir Justin. <laughs> it's fun, I love the fact he gives he gives one of the cooks a, a Dark Ages karate chop. I should I Good and true. I did see that, and I thought, wait a minute, that's a little out of place, but eh, it's still kind of fun. I do like it. And what is the uh, the sound effect there? Clovk. <laughs> yeah. Again, good sound effect. On the next page, blam blam. That's what you went when guns shot. Guns are shot in the clang when the when the swords bashed him on the back of the heads, one of the baddies. This is good stuff. Yeah, I almost thought I was going to decapitate him there. I'm like, look out, man. <laughs> And then the, the crook, ouch, let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a gentle knight. And, and we, we have suggestions, you know, reacting when one of the, one of the crooks says, that guy's suit must be bulletproof, because the wizard earlier had mentioned the word bulletproof, and he mentioned Learjet, so obviously the wizard's a bit of a time traveler, it seems. Perhaps the tree was actually a time machine. That could be it. A portal, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He backed back yeah. on the Wizard, look. So, did you did you hear the episode of Rob Kelly's For All Mankind on the Fire and Water Network talking about the issue of Super Friends, in which Merlin just suddenly wanders into a park and you know starts zapping people? <laughs> no, exactly, I didn't hear that one. <laughs> I think he'd probably been in a tree, but he looks pretty much exactly the same. And you know, I think Rob was saying he looks, you know, ridiculously cartoonish and cliched. And that's again, that's how I want my Merlin to look. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yep, <laughs> for sure. And, you know, Sir Justin goes after them because the three of them try to get away. And um, I do love this panel here at the bottom of, oh, I guess that's page 20, where, you know, there he is. And he, uh, Winged Victory is kind of rearing up and he has the uh, 
a lance there pointed right at the car coming towards him. And then, man, you turn that page and wow, what an awesome panel is that when the car hits him? Oh, spinning. And I, I, I like the, the referment they cause a souped up sliver. Have you ever heard of a sliver? <laughs> no, that's a new one on me. Cheap car, apparently, in parlance of the time. I learned a word. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that. I was like, uh, maybe they're just kind of making that one up on the fly. <laughs> <laughs> no, never, never. No way, not in a comic, right? <laughs> but, but on, on, page, on page 21, though, you have, you know, two, as, as we get towards the ending, you know, we have people reacting to Sir Justin. And all the way through, we've always been polishing up the original dialogue, getting rid of the crappy bits. <laughs> mm. But I don't think it does any the reader any favors by bidding an exchange from the original Golden Age comic, in which you know someone says, "What's going on around here?" In fact, it's a policeman. What's going on around here? And you're thinking, "Faith, Patrick Murphy, tis your eyes that are going back on ye." Phew! A horse flying through the air with a man on her back. I mean, give me the cut Irish cup dialogue any day of the week. <laughs> oh, I like this though. Yeah, like you said on, on that following page, the cop. Holy, here comes that flying tin can again. <laughs> yeah. That's great. <laughs> it is great. Oh, and actually, there was, there was a, one, one panel on, on, on the penultimate page, page 21. Did you, did you notice the dialogue at the bottom of page 21? Oh, Sir Justin, he says, oh, get down upon your knees, varlets, and give thanks to the good man Moresby was most unduly hurt by your assault. Else, all the caverns from Albion to Hyperborea would not be vast enough to hide ye from my wrath. <laughs> now you know he's, he's Conan. Yeah, that's really not into his Conan work. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Good, good thing though. I like that. That's that's fun. I like when they do that kind of stuff. It is because like like the other the other ones when he was nodding to his invaders work. That was clever, clever stuff. You know, it doesn't take you out of the comic really. It's just a bit of fun. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then oh, we have. Uh, Eve here again, and she's a, a starry-eyed looking at Sir Justin and says, I figured you're going to be around for a long time, dreamboat. <laughs> well, she's not got much chance because this story is set in October 1941. All-Star Squadron 1 began in December on Pearl, was it December 10th, Pearl Harbor, something like that. So, if she got mm, a seven. close in, ah, thank mm -hmm. you, that we're living in for me. But if she got a close into him, it was only for about six weeks then, because soon he met Firebrand and his heart went out to the net. Yeah, that was the end of that romance, right? Him and Eve here. <laughs> but Tony draws a very good woman there, too, man. She looks very good in that panel where she's saying that dialogue. Doesn't she indeed? I like the 40-style the 40 dress. And do you think Tony draws a good floating head of Hawkman in the final panel? Oh, yeah, we needed to get our Hawkman there. And then uh, who else? Uh, Star Spangled Kid. and uh, Or who else is there? Green Arrow. Yeah, And then Brandy. Yeah, so two of the seven soldiers of victory, future pals. Mm -hmm. But yeah, again, another great panel. And there's, you know, Winged Victory looks fantastic. Sir Justin flying and the sword, you know, breaking the panel there. Oh, it looks great. Yeah, yeah. And on that final panel, we have a bit of Roy adding things that you don't need to add when he has Sir Justin speculating that the reason he's not recognized by Eve, despite the fact that she's seen him earlier, is because Merlin's added an extra spell, a magic toother. I mean, it seems a stretch. Some things just don't need explaining. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you could just let that go for sure. Yeah, but I mean, overall, just absolute beginning to end. 
top-notch classic done-in-one comic. Yeah, absolutely. And then next, the amazing origin of Robot Man. So, okay, all right. Why don't we uh, move on to that one then, right? Uh, All-Star Squadron 63 from uh, cover date November 1986. And this is a cover by Michael Bear. So I don't have a ton of his work either, but the stuff I do have is usually pretty good. So what do you think of this cover here? You probably won't be surprised to hear that I think it's stupendous. I mean, Robot Man, he's in a thoroughly dissected state, but look at the smile. He's living his best life. I love the Kirby crack around his head. <laughs> the fact is, uh, his skull cap, his brain, his head, they're all apart from one another. Chest open, you know, arms arms pulled a little, you know, not covered with the metal. He's in mm-hmm. front of you know, like 1940s type circuit boards. His, some kind of electrical thing pointing out like an electrical microphone or something ready to go bzzz. brilliant logo for robot man ah, i don't know how this could be bettered yeah the only thing i look at it and think is i think his brain's not going to fit inside the uh the head there <laughs> the brain oh, looks still too big <laughs> we sit down billy <laughs> yeah just get you know get like a, a putty knife and just squeeze it and squish it in there it'll be all right yeah chop, chop <laughs> the edges <laughs> But yeah, great stuff. I love the color choice here too. Of course, Robot Man is his like silvery, you know, silver surfer looking kind of grayish silver color and uh, the purple background of all the circuitry and everything. I really like this cover a lot. This is one of the earliest issues I bought of this series um, back in the day. This is one of the earlier ones I had. Maybe the first within the first like five or six issues this was in there. I love that you make me feel so old, Billy. Thank you. <laughs> hey, anytime. <laughs> it was only thirty-five by bought. So, yeah, and I love, too, it's a, a little, just one little cover blurb here, the awesome origin of Robot Man. And, you know, we have by Roy Thomas, Michael Bear, and Mike Macklin. And uh, we also have our buddy Carl Gafford uh, colors and David Cody Weiss on letters. So uh, if you're ready to go here, I'll uh, do a little quick synopsis and then we can get right into it. Billy, I'm on tenterhooks. Okay. So uh, the origin of the golden age robot man, we see Dr. Robert Crane and Chuck Grayson at a lab working on a secret project. Suddenly Dr. Crane's girlfriend shows up and he gets slapped by Joan for forgetting their date. As the two men prepare to continue with their experiments, three hoods show up and attempt to rob them. When Dr. Crane won't comply, they gun him down and then KO Dr. Grayson. All they find locked up is a robot, but they're too dim-witted to understand the value, so they leave. Grayson wakes up and decides to remove Crane's brain and implant it in the robot. And Robot Man is born. So, okay. Kind of an interesting issue here. Very, uh, Roy was really going wild here with the, uh, you know, the the, the gangster kind of uh, angle here with this one. But so, what do you think of this uh, very first splash page here? This is a pretty good one, isn't it? It's a pretty good one. It's it's quite random. Well, actually, is it random in the fact that the other characters there? Because we have Brainwave in the background, connected to brains. We have, I think, that's the old for Humanite, who was very mm-hmm. into her it's brain from body to body. And so they're both, they're both linked with Robot Man being a, a new, a new a shell with a brain put in it. So do you think that's why they're there? Because I, I don't think they had any particular links to Robot Man. I don't either, but I can tell you what, um, I never thought I'd say this, you know, these words would uh, pass through my lips, but uh, the ultra-humanite looks damn sexy. 
<laughs> oh, honestly, she <laughs> fans golden age stories as well. She was a talent star, Billy. She looked good. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, yeah, Mike Bear and Mike Macklin, they they really, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, Robot Man looks good, and the All-Stars at the bottom, they're not super detailed because they're kind of in the background, uh, just like Brainwave there, but uh, she, you can tell they really wanted a, a lot of focus and really wanted her to look good, and <laughs> she does. Oh, uh, she certainly does, and you know, this, this splash page, we even have a, a quote from Roy, and, mm-hmm. and a little picture of the All-Stars, of course, there's Hawkman, not just his head, but the full body, which is quite a pleasant change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the Adam and Libby, and then uh, Steel and Johnny, and and then of course we need to have uh, Firebrand there, and then Sir Justin, uh, not too far behind Firebrand. So, hmm. <laughs> yeah, so basically, you know, all regulars, all sorts, apart from Hawkman, who has to be there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, th- and this one too, again, kind of reminded me of. You know, like some of the, uh, I think they were mostly late 30s and early 40s films after Boris Karloff stopped doing, you know, his uh, monster uh, Frankenstein after he stopped being part of that franchise. He did a lot of these kind of like mad scientist type films. And that's the kind of vibe I was getting from this with all the equipment and, you know, the way they're dressed and everything. And there was always like a pretty girl that was an assistant or, you know, his niece or something like that. And the car, you know, they're on page three. Like, all this scene here, especially in the beginning, really reminded me of one of those films. Oh, certainly. I mean, I think there was a scene in, in one of the early Frankenstein films in, in which, you know, the, the girlfriend comes around and the master scientist has been is so busy that he's forgotten all about it. But, I mean, here, you know, both Chuck, Chuck and Bob, they are a pair of Dr. Frankensteins, basically. But how... Mm-hmm. How could Robert Crane forget he has a date with his fiancée when she's a girl who, well, as well as being a human exposition machine, she dresses as a giant green bean? Yeah, she she actually, maybe she looks like an asparagus or something. That's a weird-looking dress, man. <laughs> I don't yeah, know about I mean, that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the original, in All Star, sorry, Star Spangled Comics number seven, you know, she is in a green dress, but it's not as, it's not as bonkers as that. Like, I can only assume that... Michael Bear did some research. and I mean, that, that hood type thing that she's wearing, I think I've seen that sort of thing in all Beth Davis films and the like of Joel Crawford or whatever. But it's just such a remarkably interesting outfit. Mm, and then, yeah, I love her dialogue too. Uh, well, when uh, Crane says, Joan, I, I don't know what to say. And she says, don't bother. I've come, just, I've come for just one thing, this. And the sound effect, slap. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> okay, that's that's what she went once. But then on page four, we have a bit more casual golden age sexism added by Roy. You know how women are. Oh yeah, I. He get what does he say to him? I'm sure Joan will understand. We just got so engrossed in the final phase of our experiment, and they he says, Bob says, uh, sure, let's forget it and get back to work. I'll call Joan in the morning, smooth things over, and that'll be that. You know how women are. <laughs> what? I mean, her feelings don't matter at all. It's you know, it's it's their work. She can she can wait tonight. She can cry all night or be angry all night. Don't don't try and sort it out now. Just she'll come running to you tomorrow. You big handsome rich scientist, you. Mm-hmm. Of course, right. <laughs> and then those two goobers are getting all like, all right, let's start going crazy with the experiment here. And ding dong, somebody rings the doorbell. Or I'm sorry, ring. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, look, I love that the sound effect actually goes off. You know, the G of the ring is actually off panel, pretty much. <laughs> yes, I can't have. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, when, when, this, when the, you know, when they answer the door, the thugs are there. By, by the third panel, you know, the fourth panel was the thugs, and the one who's come in the vest, which is a bit of a theme with thugs in this issue. Mm-hmm. But do you call him vest? Can you call no, to you a vest is a waistcoat? Would this be a wife beater in America at this point? Yeah, I think that's Dick what they refer to it. Yeah, but in the final panel of the page, a colour a colour a colour or maybe just the angle of the vest, it makes it look like he's shirtless. And that's a good look. It's like flesh coloured. <laughs> oh yeah, you can see the line of it still, yeah. But I like how that guy is, you know, in a pair of jeans and an undershirt, and then the other guy that's you know doing most of the talking is in like you know a three-piece suit yeah <laughs> i like, mean what he might as well have a something attached to his chest saying thug number two not the yeah one. well when they say like oh it's probably just Ju- oh that's another good one too he says it's probably joan returning to apologize i'm thinking apologize for what and then yeah. <laughs> the goon says sorry to disappoint you doc but we ain't your gal friend Get them hands up, both you. And I thought, oh, here we go. I love the <laughs> the goon speak. <laughs> it's, it's just brilliant fun. Roy was so good at you know capturing the voices. Yeah, and then man, is it? It's wild. He, like I said in the synopsis, he just you know Doctor Crane there doesn't even want to comply. So like the the goon with the uh, the, the undershirt on just crack 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 just guns him right down with a Tommy gun right there. Yeah, just. Quite brutal. It's really nicely drawn with, you know, with the the, the goon shooting Bob and the four, you know, the four bullets going through different parts of the body, including his looks like his head probably, and very very nice blood blood style coloring behind them both. Mm, yeah, and then I do like that perspective shot too, where Doctor Grayson's like Bob, and he's kind of looking down at him, like you know, the camera is almost like right there on the floor. That's pretty neat too. It's pretty neat, and again, there's more, another cinematic effect towards the bottom of the page when. We you know when the Bob, Bob, Bob's Bob's sorry, he's look he's looking sorry Bob's wake Bob's waking up and he's looking he's looking up with Chuck and it's like very wobbly artwork it's very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really nice touch there too. And <laughs> the goons <laughs> before they leave, I love how they hit the button thinking they're gonna get the jackpot here and the the head goon or oh, I'm sorry one of the other well dressed goons. What the hell's this? Were these guys playing with dolls? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got eleven in. Nothing here worth a plug nickel. I mean, mm. I would, I would surely be interested enough if I was a thug to actually have a look at this robot, robotic figure, and see what it is and see whether it's worth taking. Well, I'm just thinking. I don't know. I don't care how stupid I am. If I came the place to like rob them, I'd grab something at least. You know what I mean? Because otherwise, what if you get caught now for breaking and entering? And now you're going to be up on murder charges or accessory to murder. It's like grab something at least. Definitely. It's, you know, they're not very bright. No, not at all. And then I love when you flip to page six. Again, these, these you know, Karloff films, these mad scientist films are, are in my brain here. So the, the you know, a huge panel there where it shows uh, the robot laying on the slab there. And then the brain is connected to some giant machine. And it looks like it's going to, you know, squish it inside the, the, the head of the robot. Oh man, this looks great! I really love this. It looks brilliant, and you know, it's it's quite a wordy page. But I think Roy does just absolutely wonderful job of giving us, you know, the first person narration by the future robot man. It's it's you know, it's lyrical, but it's not too flowery. The description of the lab work is just really 
works with the pictures without without you know repeat noting them too much. Just very very nice work. And then I do love when uh, Grayson uh, puts the uh, top of the head on, and we get snap. <laughs> oh man, great sound effect! Snap. It's 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 very good indeed. I, I love all the Kirby crackling Michael Bear's artwork as well. Mm. Yeah, that looks really good. That long panel there on page seven. There's a ton of it in there, and it looks really good. And like I said, how he's kind of monologuing to himself there. And, um, the, yeah. first, the first the first panel of monologuing as well with that, that image, image of his brain in the corner where normally you might have the person face here. It's, it's just a brain looking like an atomic bomb cloud or something. Very funny. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, I do like this too because I thought to myself, like, if you're the gangsters that showed up there, you know, you want to kind of cover your tracks. So we see the one guy, he calls the cops and he says, you heard me right, officer. The sound, And then we see the cop saying, the sound of shots coming from Dr. Robert Crane's place. And you say you saw his assistant do it. Who is this anyhow? And he just hangs up and hello, hello. Damn, better go check on the doc. And then that's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the police show up. <laughs> He's a caring cop. And I can go, go, go back just before that where they're, after, after Bob snapped, snapped the skull cap shut and he's realised that the experiment seems to have worked so far as he, mm-hmm. far as he can tell. It's a nice change of emphasis between the original and the remake in terms of Chuck realising the success because in the golden age, Chuck triumphantly cries out again in a Frankenstein way, he's alive! Alive! But in, mm-hmm. the universe, in the universe, really subtle change to it's alive, dot, dot, dot. He's alive with the lettering not, not as emphatic. And here you have Chuck with a tear in his eye, he looks decidedly more somber, melancholy, less the mad scientist, more the relieved friend. And see, you know, deliberate choice by Roy, and it just makes Chuck seem, you know, more of a decent cove. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a nice touch. And then uh, I think, too, you flip to that next page. And at first, you know, Grayson is like, hey, wait a minute. And he thinks that he wants to tell the police what really happened instead of being framed. But he thinks to himself, what does he say? At that instant, Chuck tells me he was suddenly seized with a fear that if he told the police about me, about the brain transplant, they might try to check his story by examining the robot carefully and thus truly kill what little remained of me in a single unthinking moment, which that's a pretty interesting theory. I mean, I could see that happening. So uh, the fact that he was willing to, you know, go to prison and maybe even, you know, get the electric chair here uh, just so his buddy could have a brain living inside of that robot. That's pretty interesting. Certainly. I mean, it's, I mean, he was a noble figure. And of course he was later revealed to be related to Dick Grayson. Again, the, the unified theory of surnames in comics, especially Roy Thomas comics, everyone's related. <laughs> so he, he was a noble soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I do like to, man, that page, I think it's page nine where, you know, Robot Man wakes up, and I love the the panel progression there at the top, where you know you see the 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 lines like you would on like a heart rate machine start to like beep 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 beep, beep and the eye come alive. Then, oh man, that's really cool. I like that. It's it's really really well done. It it just draws you in, mm. and then that then you know when when he moves and the hand comes upward, it's it was all again more not Kirby crackle, but just general fantastically current special effects it's marvelous yeah and he says we boy am i stiff <laughs> it's like yes i guess and he goes but man i've got a headache and he's like chuck and he's like i wonder where's he at and all this stuff and 
oh, you did it, you did it. And I like that panel, too, where he's, like, you know, got his arms, you know, spread across, like, you know, wow, this is awesome. This is great. You know, because, again, he thought he was going to be dead, and now he's alive. But it's like, yeah, you're sort of alive. Like, your brain's still alive, but the rest of you is gone, is dead. And then he goes and uh, tries to walk, and he, he's having trouble walking, of course, because, you know, his brain is his, still his brain, and but now he's in this metal body. But what do you think of the uh, the page there? Uh, I think it's page 10 when, uh, you know, he's trying to figure out how to walk and then he sees himself in the mirror. It's brilliant. I mean, it's a, that, that's that's all new for more. That's not an original story. And it's, it's it's quite poignant, you know, because on the previous page, he's, he looks happy, ready for the yellow brick road. And but now, mm-hmm. you know, it's fair to sense, is he, is he, you know, the cold hard facts of what his life might be now, the pseudo life. Hit him, and it's just really nicely conveyed. I mean, when he when he falls, and you have that little panel at the top on the top tier, with him going splang as he falls down, and love you know, sort of, you know, yellow, yellow and yellow and black angled effect mm-hmm. by Michael Bay and the colorist. Was it was it Carl Gaffin? I've forgotten actually. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so intelligently done. It's like it's a really nice melding of intelligence and art. This page. Yeah, there's like actually like almost like four panels there kind of all squished together, three out of the four. You know, there's one where he's just standing there by himself with the white background and then, you know, running on the floor and then the fall and then trying to get back up. It's it's really a neat progression there. And yeah, I just when he looks at himself in the mirror when it finally hits him like, you know, yeah, your brain is still intact and everything on that side of things is great. But now it's he's coming to the realization that it's like oh, crap, I'm in a robot body. So, you know, it's, it's again, it's slowly starting to hit him that things are still going to be way different, even though he's still, you know, air quotes, alive. It really is. Now, that, fa- that final panel, when you see he smashed the mirror, the, the cracks on the mirror is just so stupendously well done. Gosh, I must, I must apologize, because if anyone's listening to this and their machine is short-circuiting, it's because I'm gushing so much. <laughs> yeah, and then he finds a newspaper, too, that says about... Uh, you know, Chuck taking the blame for uh, get him getting murdered. And then he's like, I've, I'm still alive. I, I've got to, you know, got to get to him and got to, you know, set things straight here. And <laughs> I like how he's yelling for a taxi. And the taxi looks like a Rolls Royce. I'm like, what? What taxi look like that? I don't know, but it's just like a fantastic. It doesn't look like a taxi so much as a piece of art deco genius. The way Robot Man is moving towards him, speeding towards him, it's great. And of course, of course, we have the cliche the, the taxi driver stunned by what he's seeing, the man speeding towards him, the robot figure. So of course, altogether now, he swears never to drink on the job again. <laughs> yeah, and I do love when they have old cars in comic books too. And last issue with Tony DiZaniga, his his rendering looked great. And Mike Bear and Mike Macklin here, again, the, the car looks fantastic. There's a lot of detail in it. And I do love uh, the solution for the uh, taxi cab driver to get uh, Robot Man off the side of his his cap. <laughs> That's great. What do you think of that? Well, basketball the head of the tie, Ryan. That that makes sense. And it's, you know, it's the second time in the issue someone's been bashed like that. But I think it's it's quite you know, you you would be terrified. You wouldn't know whether it was a good guy or a bad guy. This is a strange world they're living in now. So, you know, it could, it could be a Nazi in a tin suit. Bash him, I say, bash him. <laughs> yeah, and he kind of just runs away then and of course, a crowd of people see him and they're like, hey, who is that? What's going on? And Halloween was last night. The one guy says, and then he says, please, everyone, I don't mean to any harm. I just it talks too." And then, thank God, here comes a cop and the copper comes out. And 
all right, whatever you are, up with your hands, or so help me, I'll shoot. It's like, dude, he hasn't even shown that he's a danger to you, anybody there, himself, nothing. What's with the gun, and I'm going to shoot you. It's like, calm down, dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, this is like the least successful page artistically because it's got so many little skinny, skinny panels. But I love the panel where Robert Man's running, running up some steps. They're really, really nicely drawn sort of you know with more detail than you'd expect mm-hmm. but it's it's a good intense story i mean the, you know things are getting more and more hard for robot man he's panicking a little bit he's he's just in such such a hard dilemma and the, you know writers and artists are capturing it really nicely yeah he does the cop does shoot him a bunch of times of course you know it doesn't penetrate the metal you know shell around him but he does uh robot man does you know remark that uh, it gives him a headache, gives him a pounding headache after he got shot in the head. And, you know, I kind of feel like he's, you know, not Superman here where if he got shot enough times or whatever, maybe eventually, you know, one would kind of get through. That could well, it could well be, you know, because when he made, when he made this suit, he probably wasn't expecting it to have bullets fired at it. So who knows how tough they made the chrome cranium. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, he goes back to the lab and he's, you know, trying to think to himself like he's, you know, like, hey, how do I, you know, I, I want to be able to, as he says, mingle with the masses. And he's trying to figure out how to do this. And he's like, oh, I need a disguise. And he basically cooks up, you know, a disguise here where it's it only shows him putting a mask on. But it's got to be like at least, you know, a mask down into a little bit of the chest and like rubber, you know, gloves that look like hands because you see all those body parts, you know, without the clothing that he, he's got to at least do that and he makes a he makes a crazy mask and puts it on yeah what did you what did you make is at the top of the page we have as he's making the mask we have a series of faces that mm-hmm. he's, uh, you know look looks he might adopt and you know you, you've got you've got liberty bell or perhaps veronica lake a very steep <laughs> difficult peter parker superman marilyn monroe at least a decade too early Possibly Guy Gardner, but not Amanda Waller and Oberon, although it looks like they're there, but it's again too early. It's like the artist, Michael Bear's just having fun putting in, because you, you, there's no way that's not, about, not Marilyn Monroe and Peter Parker on that page. Oh, that certainly does look like the 1960s Ditko Parker. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yeah. laughs> I like how he says, too, we could, I could make myself this, that. And he goes, e- even a very big boned woman. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Too funny. But yeah, he slips the mask on and you know, he does look pretty human there. So it's not bad. He actually did a good job making that. And he's like, says about, Oh, now just one last detail, my eyes. And he puts in these special like contact lenses that look like eyeballs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now the eyes fine, but I think he's gone too far with the idea that he puts in a fake mouth and false teeth. It's like, uh, I tried too hard again. It's just disgusting. I mean, how the heck is he meant to concentrate on solving this crime when he's got he's wearing a rubberoid mask, he's got false eyes, he's got a false mouth in which would probably make him gag with his the memory of being human, of having his throat and esophagus and things. It's just uh, total mad scientist, the whole page. just brilliant. I love it. Yeah, and I never... he So he goes to uh, visit his buddy... Uh, Grayson in uh, prison here, but I didn't realize like it never hit me because I just I don't know I didn't ever think anything of it, but I didn't realize that 
he says, you know, oh, my name's Paul Dennis. And that was a guy that was an actor back in the 30s. Oh, I didn't know that. What, 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 what sort of things was he in? Was he a B-movie actor? Yeah, it was, it was not. I don't think he did more than like four or five movies. So it wasn't like he was a big deal or anything like that. But it was just weird because I looked it up and I was just thinking to myself, maybe this is somebody famous. And when you look up just the name Paul Dennis, one of the first few things that comes up is this guy named Paul Dennis Reed that was a convicted serial killer. <laughs> but, oh, no. Yeah, but if you look up like Paul Dennis, actor, um, there was a guy, like I said, from like the third, I think he was in the 30s, and uh, he only made like a few films. And I was just like, oh, so maybe that's where Roy got this from, you know, because he was big into that. Well, it could be, but Paul Dennis was the original character's name. Mm hmm. Yeah. He was in the original strips. So, yeah. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's two, it's two very common names stuck together. So it's probably just a coincidence. I do like what he says. Uh, he walks in there. Of course, uh, Chuck has no idea who he is. And he's like, hello, Chuck. And he goes, what do you want to see me about, Mr. Dennis? If it's life insurance, I'd imagine I'm a pretty I'm a pretty poor prospect. And he goes, I've come to tell you it's ridiculous. They're blaming you for Bob Crane's murder. And he's like, why are you getting so what does he say there in the panel? Is that page 16 on the very bottom panel there? He said about going to prison for life and this and that. And then he kind of pulls the mask off. And <laughs> Grayson's like, what? And he's like, it's me. <laughs> it's, mm. it's, it's just, yeah. That, I mean, it's wouldn't be so surprised when he's actually, I suppose he wouldn't necessarily think that that would be the result of making the brain go into a new body. But I mean, this, that page 17 has my line of the issue, the line of the issue where, well, do you, are you familiar with the Carry On films? I have heard of them. I have never seen them, though, but I know which ones you're talking about. Yeah, yep. Bawdy British humour, double entendres, Uwer Mrs. And I think the Uwer Mrs. line of the issue is when the newly created Paul Dennis reveals himself as Robert Mandichuk. And he says, right, Bob Crane, alive, well, and in need of a good lube job. <laughs> That's great. And he looks really freaking creepy there without that mask on in the suit. <laughs> He does, he does really. <laughs> and then when we go to the funeral, it's quite nice in, in this version of the funeral. He has several mourners. In the, in the original one, it's just poor John. He doesn't seem to be a popular fella. No, and it's funny. He goes, so it was that a couple of days later, while my best friend languished in jail, I pulled a Tom Sawyer and attended my own funeral. <laughs> uh, That's great. Dropping in the literary references, but it's fair enough. That could have been mm -hmm. the original writer, Jerry Siegel. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I, I do love, too, how and then, you know, we got to have a little more action here. So um, as they're uh, driving off away from the funeral here, uh, it's uh, Bob and, uh, oh, what's her name? Uh, Joan. Joan. I almost said Eve. <laughs> Joan. Yeah. Um, they're driving off and they get hit by this truck. And like a like almost like a moving van or something like that hits something. The sound effect crash, <laughs> which is great. And then uh, the guy, what's the big idea, Mac? And he goes, you talking to me, short stuff. <laughs> and he says, look, fella, it was all your fault. And we're in a hurry. So why don't you just and this big guy again with just pants and an undershirt on comes over and says, yeah. a Weisenheimer, huh? How do you like a poke in the snoot? <laughs> it's just it's just wonderful, wonderful stuff. 
Okay, I'm, I'm learning good good dialogue. This is this is how you speak in America, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, especially if you're a, a crook, yeah. And then uh, Robot Man says, not particularly, but if he'll make you feel any better. So, of course, the guy comes over, and he's a big guy, and he clobbers him, and, of course, he hits a metal head, and he's like, ow, <laughs> if I broke his hand. <laughs> mm. and then on the next page when Roy, Roy sorry I'm obsessed with Roy hi Roy when uh, mm. you have the goodbye Bob and Jones say goodbye after the funeral and Roy wisely eliminates the original goodbye which she seems utterly enamoured by the guy she's just met it's like she's gone to the funeral to pick someone up going <laughs> tasteless honestly she needs to sort him out as I didn't go no but it's just, uh, it's just Michael Bear is just doing such a fantastic job of giving us forties in New York with its distinctive buildings and nightclubs and glamorous broads posing in it says here dens of iniquity that's where I like yeah that was that was funny too I guess this is him monologuing for the next several days and nights I haunted some of the most prominent dens of iniquity in Manhattan Queens Brooklyn the Bronx even Staten Island I knew only single names of two of my killers so I concentrated on the more distinctive of those <laughs> It's great looking. Yeah. It's Michael Bay. He's, he's he's drawn three panels, and in two of them, one you know, one's a big widescreen establishing shot of the interior of the nightclub, and we've got one woman you know posing at the side of the panel, another one you know sort of like voguing at the right hand side. Mm-hmm. The, there's another woman coming into the panel into shot posing. He's really give, giving us a lovely you know a lovely worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great stuff. And then, of course, you know, he's trying to some guy says like, oh, I'll help you. Just pay me a couple of bucks and I'll help you find this flip guy. And then uh, it doesn't really uh, go go over too well. I guess the guy basically tries to rob him. So Robot Man just punches him. And it's fuck. That's always a good one, too. That's one of my favorite sound effects ever. Fuck. Ah, in the same panel. <laughs> and later on, we get we get knock, 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 slam and wham. Yeah, so he's like, uh, remember me? Hey, hello, Flip, remember me? Because he kind of, you know, strong arms the other guy into telling him where this Flip guy is. And, you know, he smashes the door in and wham, like you said. And uh, he's like, who are you? What are you going to do to me? And he's like, crush your head like an eggshell unless you get your boss over here pronto. It's like, wow, calm down, robot man. Yeah. And so he phones the boss, Billy. And then later, mm-hmm. robot man reaches where the boss is. We learn that, in fact... Flip had given his boss Mason a secret signal over the phone. What the heck? You know, the dialogue that he has is just entirely what you'd say in the circumstances. Flip, you've got to get over here to my hotel room right away alone. There's nothing there that would, could tip him off unless he's you know, tapping the phone in a Morse code or something. I just. <laughs> I'm amazed Roy didn't put, you know, didn't elucidate from the original, just tell us what, you know, what the secret signal was. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking to myself, okay, are we just to assume it was something that happened off panel, I guess? I don't know. That was kind of bizarre. But then the goons show up, and basically Robot Man just kicks the crap out of them, <laughs> which is funny. He's, he's got a lot of you know frustration that he's got to get out mm-hmm. in style. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we flip over to page 22, and we get a, a Superman moment here where he's like, faster than a speeding bullet, and then... More power than a locomotive. <laughs> Very interesting. You really, you really do. And you know, okay, Mason's car is different to the one, the one in the original Golden Age comic. But if you look at the shape and color, that's pretty much totally the comic, the car from Action Comics num- number one. You have the, the little guy fleeing in, in panel five, 
it's pretty much the cover. It's cheekily familiar. And then when we go over the page and you have sort of robot man rushing to the governor's mansion to make a guilty man confess, mm-hmm. straight straight out of Action Comics number one's ever Superman story. And then, you know, who wrote this robot man story? Who wrote the Superman story? Uh, she's uh, Schuster, right? <clears throat> Jerry Siegel. Jerry, Jerry Siegel. Siegel and Joe Schuster, yeah. Yeah, it was Jerry, Jerry Siegel writing for the first robot man artist, Ed, Ed Dubrovka. And he's definitely, you know, lifting from himself here. Yeah. So I think Roy was acknowledging that by maybe having Michael Bear, you know, reference reference the art of Action Comics one with the, with the car and maybe Carl Gaffin with the colouring of the car and the man running in the panel. Mm-hmm. I mean, you must always tell me if I'm reading too much into things, Billy. <laughs> I do love, too, how he gets him into the governor's mansion and says, so now I'll let Mason speak for himself, governor. And he says, so that's how we killed Doc Crane. So help me. And he has green hair, by the way. I'm thinking, OK, is he uh, Doc Sampson here or what? <laughs> it's weird that DC haven't fixed that on their digital version. Mm, too funny. But, oh, here we go. You know, at the very end here. And he's like, uh Bob, uh, or I'm sorry, Chuck gets out of prison then, and he's like, hello, Chuck, and he's like, Bob, I don't know how to thank you, and he's like, don't try. If not for you, more than Bob Crane's body would be dead by now, and we get the obligatory uh, Hawkman appearance here. Which we don't need, because we had it on page one. one yeah. Many. Mm-hmm. I guess Roy, maybe Roy was just like, put him in there again. I love Hawkman. <laughs> <laughs> he really does. Anyway, I do hope that in the inevitable all-star squadron omnibus that DC is going to give us any day now that the fix is hair color so it's not green. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. I, I don't know. I don't have a lot of faith in uh, in uh, some of the current people running things, man. I don't know if they'll even uh, worry about something like that. Just remember, every time we mention it, it's going into the zeitgeist. A few people are listening to us. They want it to. They think about it. Put it in the universe, out of the universe. It'll happen. It happened with first. It'll, it'll happen. Mm-hmm. Yep, you just got to keep doing it. Keep saying it. Too right. Make it real. All right, my friend. So uh, overall, what did you think of these two issues? A lot of fun, right? Loads, loads more fun than that than I expected. I mean, I, I remember I, I enjoyed both at the time, but this time I just enjoyed and appreciated them so much more because... You know, well, you know, we've all been a little bit disappointed by the fact that we've gone into this tales of the all-star squadron members when it didn't really seem absolutely necessary at this point, with Roy having about six or seven issues after the crisis in which he could have told new tales before going to the new all- young all-stars. But the talent he's got on the book and the affection Roy has for the original material gives us two tremendous stories, retellings. He's embellishing the originals. They look stunning. The colouring is marvellous it just makes me remember you know why i love these characters so much yeah two thumbs up here two real fun issues um the shining night one especially like we said those uh scenes in the flashback they were they just they looked right out of a film those are definitely my favorite uh pages and panels of the two issues for sure the radio i'd I'd love to hear what listeners think of these two issues it would be good good to know Absolutely. So, all right. Well, we can wrap things up here. I had, uh, I did get an email, so I'm going to go over that one quick here. That was from uh, a listener in front of the show, Stephen Shen, a uh, great guy. He uh, emailed in and said, uh, enjoyed the episode, even though it's the beginning of the end of Earth 2 and the All-Stars being a great book. 
this is uh, uh, in reference to All-Star Squadron 50. And he said, uh, I've always been torn between enjoying the crisis for its excitement and energy, but then seeing its immediate impact on one of my top five DC books. Soon after this crossover, and definitely once Crisis closes the door on Earth 2, the All-Star Squadron book became almost an extension of Secret Origins. Sad, but inevitable. And, you know, we're getting into that right now with all these, uh, you know, uh, like like he said, Secret Origins kind of uh, books here, you know. But I, I feel like Roy was kind of, you know, just trying to do the best he could at this point, right? I think he was. But, I mean, Stephen, you know, who is a brilliant supporter of the podcast, he captures the ambivalence I feel, and I think you feel yourself, totally that it's just... Yeah, you know, Crisis was an amazing read at the time, but yeah, it just destroyed so many favorite properties like you know, All Star Squadron, Legion of Superheroes, Superboy. Ah, big sigh. Yeah, and he goes on to say uh, he agrees with Sean that everything Roy planted in this series came to fruition with the JSA book and its legacies thirty years later. Uh, still doesn't take away the sting out of losing whatever the Squadron book could have been if Crisis hadn't ended its continuity. Wonder if Roy's ever published what he might have done if Crisis hadn't interrupted the flow. Maybe he'd have made it to 1944 by issue 100. So take care and keep them flying from Stephen Chen. So thank you, Stephen. Yeah, it's interesting. It could drive you nuts, but it is interesting to think about. You know, I wonder what Roy would have done and, you know, what other heights it could have reached if it would have kept going and going. Ah, it's a nice, a nice thing to ponder on. On the one hand, it's frustrating and sad. On the other hand, just imagine, just imagine, as DC would say. Mm, absolutely. So, well, that's going to wrap it up here, uh, Mr. Gray. If uh, anybody wants to uh, follow you and your exploits, uh, how can they do so? They can follow me on Twitter at at March Gray and pop along to my comic review blog thing, which is called Too Dangerous for a Girl. And just find me on Facebook or find me here in a future episode, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, we've got, uh, you know, a couple more episodes left. And hopefully for the very last one there, we're going to have a, a real fun episode. Uh, you know, get the whole gang together and have a good time. So Absolutely. looking forward to that. And we're, we're still for a special episode or two as well. Mm -hmm. Yep. We'll definitely, uh, definitely have some stuff cooking there in the future. So. All right. Well, that's going to do it. So, uh, everybody, uh, thanks for listening in, and uh, we will catch you next time. Thanks for listening again, yes, and have a good time with whatever you're doing in your life, people. Take care, everybody.